This is Bibliovile, the terrible book exchange podcast where a wife and her husband get each other the worst books they can find. For this episode of Bibliovile, Mick read A Match Made in London by Christina Britton, and I read Joanna Shoop's A Notorious Vow. Welcome to Bibliovile. My name is Mick Dickinson. And I'm Susan Dickinson. And, and what, is, oh, what is a more surprise? Do you have a thing you'd like to say? Oh, I was just going to like, you know, try to have a little bit of input in the intro and explain the podcast and that kind of stuff. But it's okay. You such always a, get to do it. It's fine. I'm such a domineering husband. <laughs> Speaking sorry. of domineering husbands, those tend to be a pretty significant factor in a lot of bodice rippers yeah a a genre of book that for some reason i decided to volunteer (laughs) us for and it worked out much better for one of us than the other and it wasn't mick (laughs) yeah it was not me uh what is more surprising by the way than a comeback episode is a follow-up to the comeback episode i know not only we did we decide that we wanted to do another bibliovile a few weeks ago but after that we decided to do a second one and we already have books picked out for the third. Yeah, stay tuned to the end to find out which book of Archangel's Legion Susan will be reading. It's oh, that one. Christ above. Um, but before we reveal next week's books, we got to talk about this week's books, Susan. We do. So we were talking about what we wanted to do for episode two, season two. And we were getting ready to go to the library and Mick said, I think I want a theme. And I said, okay, we've done some theme episodes before. At least we've gone to the library with the intention of doing a theme episode before. And he said, I think the theme should be bodice rippers. Now, to your bibliovile history, the very first bibliovile I got was a bibliovile, How to Marry a Duke. Mm-hmm. And I think that might, uh, maybe one other snuck in there, but that it's might be probably the, like top five for you for sure. The most I've gotten? No. No, oh. top five favorites of your books. Oh, yeah. yeah. How to Marry a Duke was up there in terms of yeah. quality for sure. But no, bodice rippers have not made a very common appearance here at Bibliovile Industries. And so we thought maybe we should go back to a veritable well of longing glances and hard nipples. And looking at the two books that we got, I was kind of expecting them to be essentially identical. The big differences are that in Mick's book, the the hero is blonde. And in mine, at least on the cover, he's a brunette. Otherwise, they look pretty much like the exact same book. Yeah, two people, two white people conking foreheads. In London. In London, showing off their chins. Yep. This woman has not even a human chin. You see that, <laughs> no, right? It looks no. like a del Arte mask Do that someone has worn. that it's one of those like trick of the light kind of things where like on the one hand it looks like a vase but on the other hand it looks like a an old no not even a vase it's like a young woman and looking away woman. and then yeah. an old woman her chin the, like the heroine looks like the old woman's nose yeah yeah it's wild it looks like an armpit yeah 
It's wild. Yeah, this is great for an audio medium. Yeah, it's really great to describe these things. uh, Well, now to enhance our audio medium, our dog is going to come bring his toy over because he wants to play. Yeah, Finn doesn't take a buddy. We're podcasting as an answer for why he can't have his rope. Almost like he doesn't understand anything, but especially (laughs) that. Well, we need to get him to. (laughs) Uh, We're going to start with my book. I had A Match Made in London by Christina Britton. What a apt last name. Yeah. So I got to say, in our library, they have a section for like books that are new, like new releases that are very popular. They basically put them right in front of you as you walk in the door. And I think it's especially so that if you are coming to get a book that is very popular and in high demand, you don't really have to go look for it. It's just sort of shouting at you. And for some reason... This book and another book by the same author that looked essentially identical to this one, um, they were in that section. And so I was looking at some other books that I wound up checking out to like good books to read. And I picked this one up and I was kind of at the beginning, I was actually going to suggest that you get the other one and that we read books by the same author for Bibliophile. But I'm kind of glad I didn't based on... The look on your face, if you follow us on Twitter at Bibliovile, B-I-B-L-I-O-V-I-L-E, you can see the photos of Mick looking extremely less than impressed about Christina Britton's Imagine in London. Well, for sure. I think Christina Britton must be quite good at writing whatever book this is, because it seems like every cliche about these types of books made it in. London society. Um, The cover of my book, by the way, looks like the worst dressed couple at the prom. That's yeah, it's gonna real go bad. have anal sex because they're saving each other from marriage. Oh no! Uh, she's got show um, me the lie. She's got elbow length gloves, and her dress is this kind of I don't know, slightly Professor Plum. Yeah, it's it's lilac, but it's almost a little bit too lilac. It looks like there's a lot of different More fabrics like happening. And also a lot of different sleeves. Yeah. All at the same time. He has an Austin Powers cuff as well as an Austin Powers cravat, which is yeah. just a lot. Um anyway. If you had to think what was a match made in London like, I want you to go ask a man who's never read a book about London society, about people in London high society, and I'm willing to bet this guy would be like, hey, I'm walking here, I don't know, some made up problems or whatever, and then be like, yeah, that. Okay, great. It's just a bunch of made up problems. Uh, The main character is uh, Rosalind Merriweather. And her late sister we don't get to meet is Guinevere Merriweather. And I have oh. to say, that is a name, which yeah. is uh, half the fun of this these books is the names. Her beau is Tristan Crosby. I don't oh, know no. how related to uh, C- Bing? S- Bing or Sydney he is. Uh, but either way, he is described as a blonde Adonis four times within the first chapter of meeting him. Uh... Yeah, it's just, there's an apocryphal, well, I don't know if this counts as apocryphal, but there's a a somewhat urban legend, I don't know how true it is, about that Victorians had to cover up the legs of their tables with sleeves because they made them too horny. Like, they were like, oh, the legs of the table, just like, Mm, ladies' legs. And I don't think I believe that. I think it's just one of those things about, like, weren't old people crazy? Yeah. But given how easily everyone gets horned up in this book, I'm starting to believe it. Uh, if you had to pick a thing for a heroine to do sexually that she doesn't know is turning the other guy on, what would she do? 
Um, I feel like it would be something like taking her glove off or like crossing Don't her leg, licking her lips. Biting her lips. Biting her lips. This is yeah. uh, Twilight right here. Uh, she bites her lip worriedly and he is all horned up at her worrying her little bow of a mouth. Uh, Which, okay, can I ask, how often in real life do you bite your lip? The only thing I think you do less in real life that happens in books is sticking your tongue out at people. Yeah. And every it's like not a thing that adults do. Not really, no. Unless you're trying to look like Kristen Stewart or taking a Tinder selfie, I guess. Um, like Kristen Stewart. Uh, but she bites her bottom lip and he's like, Oh, that's a lady's mouth. Oh my and god. They're horned up. And I'm a high school teacher. I recently have to grade quite a few essays. And in this book, they would be getting a similar comments that many of my students do, which is yes. But why? It was love at first sight. He loved her. You know, they were really into each other. I can't wait to see her. Yes. But why? Why are they? Because of the lip bite, Nick. What possible reasons do they have to be in love with each other? They don't even especially like each other. They, but then, you know, they, like, can't stop thinking, and then they both, it's great, and it's like, but why? There's nothing you've shown me. That leads me to conclude. I did some pretty heavy skimming, I will say. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because this this book could be one conversation. You like me. No, I don't. But they did, didn't they? That oh, could be that no. conversation 80 times. And it would still only rival about a quarter. This book was an especially slim book. as Yeah, I actually, I did almost... Like kind of on purpose. I picked you a skinny one. Because I feel like a lot of times in the oh, past. You know I, I like have gotten thick, you... Susan absolutely gigantic you like thick bibliophile books mike i like my curvy book i love my curvy <laughs> i love book. my curvy book um yeah it was only 280 pages which is not especially uh egregious philbin for a, a bodice ripper to be but it was the same conversation every single time and so it just it was a broken record of who gives a shit uh Every, every problem was either made up that they were making themselves or every obstacle that was in their way was so improbable as to be ridiculous that at this initial ball where she's a matchmaker or she's a companion to a... Like a uh, prostitute? That's what I would think. But no, apparently, according to this book, uh, Victorian women would hire friends oh. uh, and win people, I guess. Sorry about that uh, loud noise that you might have heard. Finn ran Sorry. on the table. <laughs> um, and so she's a hired companion to basically be a professional wing woman, I guess. And he has this hobby of being a matchmaker, but doesn't want anyone to know. And so Tristan goes and is a handsome man and flirts with the ladies to get the real man who really should be the one to notice how much he cares for this lady that Tristan's flirting with. And yeah, um, but at this ball where they're originally supposed to like start to actually fall in love with each other, uh, Miss Merriweather is is supposed to be watching her charge, her companion, who goes on the dance floor with Tristan, and she doesn't trust Tristan because she's heard such terrible things about London society. And so the, all these rakes and mm. gavabouts or whatever. Yes, those are words that get tossed around a little bit in my book, too. And so every time she goes up to Tristan, she's like, you're a terrible person. And he's like, I'm not, though. And she's like, I know you. And he's like... Yeah, but I'm not, You don't know me, though, actually. Yeah, and so, and then he's like, oh, she's so great, and she's like, fuck you. (laughs) It's like leading me back to my question, but why? Because she speaks her mind, like, gross, but like. That is something that 
has always frustrated me about the romance novel genre is that in probably like at least three quarters of romance novels, the two main characters hate each other. Yeah. For at least two thirds of the book. Yeah. Why do they hate each other? So that there's something to write a book about. But you can come up with other plot lines than these two people that hate each other are going to bone. Like pirates in Colorado. Oh, sorry. Season two. We can't reference season one too much. Um, You can't get through an episode of Bibliobile and not reference Midnight Sense. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, And so anyway, she's at this ball and she's supposed to be watching her. This is within the first quarter. And there's the mom of the lady she's companioning, wing womaning, wants Tristan to want to bone her daughter so that later a rich dude with a bunch of jowls comes over and wants to bang her daughter instead and she marries him off to the richer dude than Tristan. Tristan is apparently a lowered position or something. Who gives a shit about the aristocracy? Fuck them. Off with their heads. Um, <laughs> eat the rich. Eat the rich. Um, And so she's trying to find Mr. Or she's trying to keep an eye on him, but she wants to go find him better. So she's going to go up to some sort of balcony upstairs and there's a door behind a curtain and the door behind the curtain doesn't open. And so as she's behind the curtain, who's there, but the Mr. Jowls talking about how he doesn't actually want to marry the woman. He just wants the dowry. And when he has the woman, he's going to pay some amount of attention to Miss Merriweather, whether she likes it or not. And so there you go. The guy is I'm bored. Well, it's, it's not even, <laughs> it's just like, why were you behind the curtain? Like you had to, you had to come up with yeah. such a reason for this guy to be able to say this. And then as she's running to warn her charge about this jowly jowly man, she gets held up by just like, in my mind, it was basically just a conga line of people. <laughs> Like, just slowly <laughs> walking past. And she's like, I can't get through. Oh, and I'm like, no. Jesus Christ. And so most problems are like that. Uh, the author um, uses female and male. And it's like, stop doing that. It's, it's pretty weird. You sound like an alien. Just yeah. man and woman is fine. Like, jeez. And it wasn't even like the character. Like, one character doesn't know how to speak about people. So she's like, oh, I just don't understand females. It's like, no, people are like, oh, I, I just love her female neck. What the hell are you talking yeah, about, Yeah, why does bud? that need that particular description? Uh, she has a tempting little mouth. Of course she does. That's why they fell in love at first sight. Yeah, um... So I think the I hate you so much makeout scene might as well be the turn in your badge and gun of the romance novel. Like turn in your badge and gun is to the loose cop cannon or loose cannon cap. The I hate you is is about the same, but not as much fun because no. you don't get anyone to chomp a cigar as they go to kiss somebody. Uh I wrote this down. What bullshit obstacles could be created when they're hooking up on page 197 out of 275? They have sex. I bet the answer is a lot. Well, there's one. Uh, She has her first orgasm. Uh, The white light behind her eyelids bursts into color. And so she must have the sexiest synesthesia ever. And if you need to measure... (laughs) If you need to measure sibilance on a microphone, you can do worse than sexy synesthesia uh, to measure your sibilance. Uh, her sister's locket that she wears what we later find out is a stillborn baby's hair in Uh, it like represents her sister because her sister was ruined in London society as she slept with a man and then died in childbirth basically but 
it's all much more dramatic than that, uh, is broken the night after they ha that she has sex with Tristan. And it should be the most obvious symbolism that she has been released from this worry of her sisters. Like, I don't, I can't trust men because my sister died in childbirth, a very common thing to happen in this era. But instead, she freaks out and puts it back on. And so what obstacles will be created when they're hooking up on page 197 is obstacle A1 with a bullet. Just kidding. I don't actually love you. <laughs> it was all a trick. I'm saying for reasons leading me back to my overall question. But why? Yeah. Why did you just decide all of a sudden to pretend that you never loved this guy after all? Why? Because we're only on page 197. Damn publisher's requirements that this not be just a novella. And so then she, you know, they split up and things happen. And you got to tell the woman that you love her. You can't let her guess uh, to your intentions. You got to be forthcoming and obvious with your feelings. It's like, okay, that's not bad advice. And then she goes looking through his stuff as she's packing up to leave. Gross. And uh, finds the marriage contract he got signed along with the ring after one night of doing it. Yeah. And it's like, if there's one thing I want to shout from the mountaintops about history, people been boning. There was never a time when people actually waited to marriage to bone. Like individuals do and good yeah. for them if that's what they want to do. But it's like there was never an actual societal expectation that was followed up on where like oh no we can't have sex until we're married as a society yeah teenagers bone young adults bone you get drunk and bone it happens and it always has and it it's always will biology it's like a it's, it's like a it's it's almost like it's, of, it's really a part of life yeah it's almost like it's really fun and feels really good yeah people do it all the time and i mean that in all senses of the word so that's what makes bodice rippers not as great all the time because it's like no you're just gonna bone and it's fine like you, they always did, even though there's a lot of clothes or whatever. They always boned. Ugh. Anyway. So do they get married in the end? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then they invite the old lady that was her original boss basically to the wedding. So just that the, the new wife could yell at her, which leads me to my next question. But why? <laughs> <laughs> and so, Susan, if I had to sum up this book that you got me, it's like... You know, worst prom dress, anal sex, uh, more than meets the eye. I think this was in a series. I did not meet any of the other characters it says that I was going to. Uh, and to that I say, but why? But why? But why? Anyway, that was a match made in London. Not the, uh, not the most quotable book there is, but hmm. one with a thesis of two words, which is always nice. So... Tell me about Johanna's, Johanna Shoop. There it is. Oh, Shoop, 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 Shoop. So. Shoop, Shoop, <clears throat> Joanna Shoop's A Notorious Vow. When I first started this book, I read the first page and a half and was like, oh no, this is going to be atrocious. Yeah. But then I changed my tune. Ooh, so I'm going to start sharp. from the beginning. This book starts with a quote from Helen Keller. That was immediately where I was like, oh, this is going to be very bad. A passage by Helen Keller? A quote. Oh, yes, a passage. <laughs> Sorry. Um, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. 
Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Helen Keller. So my first note is, oh no, this bodice ripper starts with a Helen Keller quote. Like, that's usually not a good look for a bodice ripper. Not a lot of foresight. Oh. Then our our male protagonist, his name is Oliver. He is described on the back of the book and also in the first couple paragraphs as being, he's, he's a recluse. He has sort of exiled himself from society. He doesn't leave his home. And so... We, like, have already heard all of this stuff about, like, he's he's a recluse, he's antisocial, he doesn't like people, all of this stuff. So in a, f- a few pages in, there's a line about him saying something to one of his servants, and it references that... Uh, he forced out a voice that he himself had not heard since boyhood. And at first I was like, really? He's that much of a recluse and that antisocial that he hasn't, like, he refuses to speak to anybody? Yeah. No, he's deaf. Ooh. He hasn't heard his voice since boyhood because he had uh, an illness in in his childhood and he lost his hearing. So that explains the whole, like, his voice is foreign to him and also explains the Helen Keller quote. Yeah, well, don't you feel like an ableist idiot? Yeah, I kind of did, but the whole book, like, way moved up from there. So the the general plot of this book, within the first several pages, our heroine, whose name is Christina Barkley, she is staying... That's terrible. She is from London, but she is staying in New York with her parents at her aunt and uncle and cousin's home. Oh, a New York-based bodice ripper. Yes. Wow. But she's originally from London. I'm ripping it. And so hey. she, her parents are terrible and she's trying to get away from them. And so for the past several mornings, what better place she to go has than been sneak. No, no, no. They're all in New York together. Oh. She's trying to get away from them like within their aunt and uncle and cousin's home. And so she like sneaks into the neighbor's gardens because she thinks the gardens are very beautiful. She's never seen anyone in them. So she's like, well, no one's using these. I'm going to sneak in. And then she falls. She has a terrible fall. She hits her head. She's knocked unconscious. Oh, no. In the neighbor's garden. I'm falling Um, in. His dog comes in and like basically gets his attention, brings him out. Timmy's fallen down the well. Christina has fallen and hit her head on a bench. And so that's how our two protagonists meet. Ah, very classic meet. Um, She is incredibly shy. She has a lot of social anxiety. And Oliver uh, tried, after going deaf, to, like, still be part of society. But he's treated very terribly for his deafness because it's... It's 18-something. Yeah, it's the 1700s, 1800s. It's olden times. And people don't understand it. And so he's basically treated as an outcast and an imbecile and he's not treated well by his peers and so they like sort of have this in common that they don't like people and so he tells her like it's okay if you come and walk around my gardens in the morning like great um just don't like i'll be working on stuff in my greenhouse just kind of leave me alone like don't talk to me but you can walk around if you want to so that's how our 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 two characters meet each other um 
I'm Christina is in a bad place because her parents have bankrupted themselves. They have a gambling addiction. They've spent all of their money. Oh. They are trying to save the family fortune and home and everything by marrying her off to someone quite wealthy. The man they've found is this like 84-year-old robber baron, essentially. His name is Van Piet. Um, and he is terrible and gross. And I'm so trading for Manhattan here. They're trying to marry her off to this Van Pete character. It's terrible. So a couple things, a couple passages that I marked that I wanted to read. Um, this book is in a lot of ways a very quintessential bodice ripper. And, and one of those is in its description of our heroine. No longer pale and in pain, she looked vivacious and energetic, mischievous almost. Cheeks and nose rosy from the cold, her skin glowed like the purest cream. Silky dark hair blew around her face while her full lips were curled into a mysterious smirk, quite the difference from the almost shy and skittish woman he'd met the other day. She has perfect features that affect him like a punch in the stomach. Like that is quintessential. I'd also bodice ripper description, right? Like to point out that that is on page twenty-four. Yeah, page twenty-four. Wow, we are getting into the she's all better now pretty quick. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Christina goes and and her parents arrange a meeting with the creepy old dude. He insists that they meet again tomorrow, and her she come unaccompanied, and so she's terrified that she's going to get raped. Um, he says Fun. a bunch of gross things to her, like, your pelvic area is a bit on the narrow side, and it's just kind of gross. Um, it's like, you're 84, you don't gotta worry about that no more, buddy. In their private area, or in their private meeting, he has a doctor come in to examine her to see if her hymen is still intact. It's not, <clears throat> I bet. It shouldn't be. that's not real. Um... So she, like she flees, she runs away from Good his for house, her. and she runs to the only place that she feels like she's going to be safe, which is Oliver's. Um, Did the doctor come in, or the doctor's about to come in, Van Pete's like, I have someone to examine you. Basically. And then the doctor walked in, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm doing a pap smear. What is this voice that you're doing? This is the New Yorker. He's walking here. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I could, you could do Queens if you want. Um, I'm, I'm do here you have to a, look do over you. Do you have a quarter for the taxi? Because I'm late for the Listen, doctor. Listen, not everyone can do Long Island like you can. Um, <laughs> say say so where my roots are. Say I'm here to check out your hymen in a Long Island hymen. accent. In a, <laughs> hymen. 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 sound like Jerry Lewis. <laughs> um, so Oliver, like, basically. Twists. He feels very bad for her. Um, he wants to kind of swoop in and save her, like all good bodice ripper heroes do. Mm -hmm. And so they come up with a solution. Their solution is that Oliver is going to marry her. Perfect. Oliver is super, super rich. He's nice. going to pay her parents enough money so that she can, they will accept it and go and leave oh, her alone. Yes. And he is going to give them money on it, with the exception that they never contact their daughter or visit their daughter unless she initiates the contact. Also, by the way, that's the that's not how a dowry works. A dowry doesn't travel from him to her. Like, he doesn't pay her parents. No, they're not, like, they're not working. Like, he's not, he doesn't, it's not a dowry. He I is know, basically so. going to pay off her parents. Well, I know, but that's that's not really, no. Now I remember the back he's, of the He's doing that because he's trying to 
Yes, I, I yeah. understand. Now I remember the back of the book. He's an inventor. He is an inventor. Does he invent anything? Yeah. What's I'll get to that. Okay. So a Hyman replacer? Another no, he's not the creepy old guy. Oh. He doesn't care about her hymen. Um <laughs> but another hey, I'm gonna go out of limb. I don't care about your <laughs> So another like quintessential bodice ripper type quote. Um, she is, she's having a really hard time reckoning with this. Like, it seems like the decision that is right, it's going to get her out of her parents' home. Um, he is basically offered, like, it only needs to be a marriage for a year. After a year, we'll annul the marriage. I'll give you a bunch of money. You can have your independence, whatever. Like, this is just to save you. She's still having a lot of complicated feelings about it. While she liked him quite a bit, she did not wish to marry anyone out of duty or obligation. She preferred to find someone who cared about her, who respected her. A man who did not mind that she hated parties and crowds and understood that the idea of hosting a dinner party gave her the cold sweats. A man who lived in the country where she could walk and not feel so closed in. A man who lived far, far away from her parents. And so, like, foreshadowing... All of these things are Oliver. Yeah, he's got. He does not like parties. And all. No, because he's been ostracized by society because he's deaf. Um, she lives with her at the moment. Lives with her cousin Patricia. Um, Patricia is very in favor of this arrangement because she thinks it is going to be better for um, her cousin, who she does love. Um, so she is talking to Oliver, basically trying to convince Oliver that, like, he should, they should do this. Um, she tells him no one is worse than Van Pete. His last wife died under very suspicious circumstances. Oh, um, Disney villain. You know, I trust Christina. She likes you, blah, blah, blah. Um, then he tells her, he's, like, worried about this arrangement. And he says, but I, I will make a terrible husband. And Patricia says, I don't doubt it. And then he gets really defensive, like, or are you just saying that because I'm deaf? And I just really liked this part because I think this is just, like, being a good friend. Um, and, and Patricia goes, no, of course not. No one deserves that sweet and trusting young woman standing in there. Um, but I'm starting to suspect you might have a chance. Aww. And so I like the fact that she's like, no, I'm not saying you're going to be a terror. Like, I'm not saying you don't deserve her because you're deaf. I'm saying you don't deserve her because I don't think that anybody does. And I thought that was very sweet. No, you don't get it. You're a terrible person. It has nothing to do with it's your nothing hearing Nothing to do loss. with your hearing, yeah. Um, other quintessential bodice rippery things. He had a bone-deep desire oh. to protect and care hey. for her in elemental knowledge that he and this woman were tied together somehow. Um, very, very yeah. classic bodice ripper yeah, language. Boner to pick with her. Um, so just to kind of sum up some pieces of the plot, they do get married. They eventually fall in love. They have sex. There's no nice. talk of her hymen. It's nice. That, um, the sex scenes are actually like, Pretty pretty fun. Nice. I liked him. Um, then there's sort of a side plot of him having trouble with his cousin, who is trying to basically steal the family fortune from him. Uh, the cousin tries to have Oliver locked up, um, oh. but Christina appears in court, overcomes her shyness, demonstrate demonstrates his invention, which is a success, as a way of proving that he is of sound mind. He's released from the asylum. They live happily ever after. Thank the God. device that he has made is a device that will help people, not who are completely deaf, but who have impacted hearing. It's basically like the old ear trumpet, but mm -hmm. it's battery powered. And so he made like a prototype of it. 
How fucking big is this battery? <laughs> That's one of the things is that like when he's making the prototype, the battery is massive. And so he's trying to make a small battery so he can actually sell it for a price that people can afford. Which brings me You invented to my a point. smaller battery, not a hearing aid. <laughs> so um one of the the reasons that he's working so obsessively on this invention is that he could sell it as is, but only people who are incredibly wealthy could afford it. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to make it so that anyone who needs it can afford it. So while this guy is incredibly wealthy, he has inherited his money. He's an aristocrat. He also, in a lot of ways that are outlined, is pretty anti-capitalist, which leads me to the reason that I actually really dug this book Joanna Shoup's a notorious vow is a feminist bodice ripper. What? So this sort of shows itself in a variety of different ways. So as already mentioned, uh, Oliver is a bit of an anti-capitalist. Um, he is complaining earlier in the book about Van Pete, the creepy guy who checked uh, Christina Simon. Um, even in a city that revered capitalism above sense, Van Pete was vilified in the newspapers. His workers were constantly striking for better wages, living conditions, and benefits. Van and Pete shot. crushed the rebellions with a heavy hand, the bloodiest of the battles only three years ago in Scranton. Hundreds died and the Union had not succeeded with their demands. And this later gets brought up several times as like a thing that Oliver is like, no, I'm super pro-Union and that shouldn't have happened. So, like, not really a thing you expect to see in a bodice ripper set in the 1800s. He's no Jonas Salk. <clears throat> um, let's see. Got some other examples here. Um, Seize the means of seduction. <laughs> okay, let's see. Hey, I'm patenting here. Sorry, I should have. If I had post-it notes instead of just index cards, I could have marked my specific. You're right. You should have bought some. I should have bought some. You're right. Um, But even the thing that I mentioned earlier about Patricia, like, no, it's not the fact that you're deaf that's going to make you a terrible husband, that kind of thing. Like, there's actually some moments in here that you can kind of tell that the author is getting at this, like, like, kind of critique of ableism and like like the fact that you're deaf doesn't necessarily preclude you, you from like doing we- yes and also doesn't mean that you aren't worthy of mm. like happiness and things mm. which is not something i expected from a bodice ripper um one of the things that it does best though is actually in the sex scenes and these are some of its most feminine feminist moments nice um because between the two of them an absolutely massive part of this book (laughs) is about consent and so when they first get married like their first night they get married and that night christina comes to his bedroom like all right you're gonna want to consummate this she's terrified she's like not heard anything good about sex and is like very afraid that it's going to hurt but she's like this is my duty as his wife and he was like no we're not actually we're not like we are legally married but um i i'm not like this is not an expectation that I have of you. Like, you don't have to do this. Um, And he never pushes it. The first sex scene, they actually don't have intercourse. He just, like, goes down on her a lot and, like, is focused on her pleasure and not at all on his. Um, And he's very, like, very intentional about that. He always makes sure in every sex scene he um, 
is sure to tell her, like, if you need to get my attention, remember tap to use your hand. <laughs> yeah, like, tap me, pinch me, tug my hair. Oh, that's an old joke. And if you do that, I'll stop right away. But, like, he makes sure to remind her of that yeah. every time because, like, he's deaf. He can't hear her if she says no. So, like, they're sort of creating this, like, expectation mm-hmm. of, like, don't forget, like, even if you say no, it's not that I'm ignoring you. I literally can't hear you. Yeah. I, is that a, What is that a joke about? There's just some joke about, you know, if you need anything, just tap me on the head. Because uh, I'll be down here. Oh. I mean, yeah. That's kind of how it goes. Um, and how she goes. Yeah. <laughs> Many times, apparently. Um, there's also, like, there's a, a conflict where he... Um, he's afraid that he's keeping her from engaging in society. And so he like arranges, but she doesn't want to No, and he forgets this. And so he arranges this night out on the town for her. Um, she says she's angry with all of her. Even they couldn't get into Hamilton. (laughs) And they knew him. And they knew him. What gave him the right to disregard her wishes and force her to do something like that? She'd repeatedly voiced an objection to, oh no, this was about the horses. He makes her like. She's afraid of horses, and he's trying to help her overcome her fear, so he takes her to the stables. Um, she'd repeatedly voiced an objection to touching or feeding the horse. Even if he'd not heard her protestations, he should have been able to read her body language. When would her choices be her own? At what point would others stop forcing her to bend to their will? Um, and what was wrong with her that she allowed it? And so this, like, real focus on, like, she is so frustrated by all of these circumstances that are not allowing her to have agency agency and con- control and, and no one is asking for her consent. And it's all the way from like larger society to her parents to like him in some of these moments. And then when these things happen, they have really good conversations about them um, and they like actually have really good relationship communication. Um, I thought you were going to say they have really great makeup sex. I mean, they have that too, but first they have really good communication and they like have conversations about it. And he is like trying to tell her about like his past and why, like kind of where he's coming from and then saying, all right, that's my explanation for why I did what I did, but that's not an excuse. Let's talk about you. Um, And, and they just, I don't know, they just do a really nice job of it. He told her, I will not push you into doing anything against your will ever. Um, but then about the horses, he's like, just know that I'm willing to help you if you change your mind. So not only am I going to, like, I'm sorry that I pushed you on this. I won't do it again. If you decide this is a fear you want to try to overcome in the future, I'll help you. And it's like, So how's it going? Good. To, is, it, is it like yay or nay? <laughs> well, there's probably a lot of nay. So, hey. <laughs> so i probably sound like i am farther away from the microphone than i was before because i am uh our dog is slowly but surely falling asleep with his head on my lap so it's very good i am i'm respecting his wishes at yeah. this time i mean we have to right it's all about consent and agency um there's also a really good thing about like she loses her temper when he does something like that I can't remember what specific instant this was. And then, so she, like, yells at him and she gets mad. Um, And so there was kind of a funny interlude of, like, she yells at him and then she feels bad about it. But she's like, do you know that I yelled at you because you can't hear? And he was like, I can see you. I can tell that you're yelling at me. Um, And then he tells you, you have the right to yell at me if you wish, especially if you feel I deserve it. Um, Then makes a joke, like, besides I'm deaf, remember, I can't hear how loudly or softly you speak. 
Um, but like is sort of reassuring her that like you are allowed to have emotions. Like if you're angry, you can be angry. You can express that um, when that's not something she ever really had growing up with her parents. So those are some examples of why this was like kind of as much as I think they can be a pretty feminist bodice ripper. Nice. I also really liked the writing of it. It was really well paced. I was getting worried in the middle because it was just a lot of like them kind of misunderstanding each other where like they both wanted it to be a real marriage, but they both thought the other person didn't. Um, so there was just a lot of misunderstanding. I was like, oh, is this going to be the whole book? Because that's going to be really annoying. And then it picked up. And then I was afraid that, like, the whole plot line about the cousin and Oliver going to an asylum all happened in the last three chapters. And so I was really worried that that was going to feel really rushed. But I actually think I would have been annoyed if it had lasted for more than three chapters. So it was all in all, like, pretty good timing. It was pretty well paced. I liked the characters. Um, like you like the main characters. I liked Oliver's butler, Gil, and I liked Christina's <laughs> cousin, Patricia. Like, it was a pretty good it's book. Like, Gil, like, hey, I'm butling here. Let me clear this tea set for you. <laughs> you want some water? <laughs> oh, jeez, I'm Gil. Oh, oh no, no, no. jeez. No. Oh, I dropped the tea set all over again. So I don't know if I would necessarily like seek out another right. Joanna Shoot book. I'm gonna book. need the rest of this review to be done in Long Island. I don't know if I can do all of it. I only have like selected phrases. So I don't know if I would like go out and and buy another book from Joanna Shoot, but like I don't know if I had to, I would probably read it. Hey, I'm checking books out of it. I mean, it wasn't like it was. I mean, for a trashy romance novel that you're gonna read on the beach or whatever, like it's pretty fine. Oh, you did pretty good. I heard it on whatever. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, whatever. All right, well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, that there exists a better breed of bodice ripper. Yeah. Listen to that. So if you're going to read a bodice ripper audience, Joanna Shoop. We have a very bodice ripper audience, that's for sure. I know. Uh, that's like Charles is just reading these. Oy. Really focused on the sex scenes, trying to pick up some tips. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> Targeted. <laughs> oh, this corset. Oh, it's really. I, I it's gotta point. get it off. I gotta get it off. I gotta get this corset off. 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 Um. So we do actually have sitting in front of us, in addition to these books, we have our books for next time, which do doesn't happen do, often. Do we want to do a Bibliovile Press update? Bibliovile Publishing update. Oh, should we start with that before we talk yeah. about the next books? Okay. Let's do Bibliovile Publishing update. We have started our Bibliovile book that we talked about last episode. Uh, it's called Dark Fauna as of right now. That is a working title. And so far we have two and a half chapters despite my to-do list to write the third and fourth for the past several week or several days. Uh, I'll just... I'll, should I do at least the landing scene? Soon? Yes. Chapter one of Dark Fauna. This is world exclusive. <laughs> Gross. Two minutes, said the voice over the loudspeaker. She hated drop strips. The entry through the atmosphere was so freaking rough. It felt more like a trip through a mountain in a minecart than a multi-billion dollar spaceship. She checked and rechecked her safety harness crossed over her chest. Across the aisle, the marine was, that was assigned to be her keeper checked and rechecked how the harness lifted and separated her boobs. She shot him a look and he had the decency to look away. But then the ship shuddered as it hit the outer atmosphere and Juliet closed, and closed her eyes. 
She prayed to the ma her magical patron to get her through this landing. After all, it was her technomagics that powered the ships, so to remove that bounty now would be more than cruel. It would be bad PR. If there's one thing the magical patrons understood, it was how to keep followers strung along. As if her realization that Diodio wouldn't accept a failure was the key the ship needed, it stopped its rumbling and was through into the clean purple sky of New Heaven. Juliet Jewel's underwriter was part of the cavalry to the colony of New Heaven. The first, the first wave was partially successful, in that more than half of them were still alive. That alone beat the Council's projections, but that success was slowing as the population of colonists began to dwindle and the shipment's home of ever-important Strongconium crystals halted entirely. She was part of Ohm Team, focusing on the colony, colony's generators and power systems. It only made sense. As a techno-mage, she had the power to pour magical force into systems and machines, powering them far beyond any non-magical designs had made possible. It was technomancy, far beyond Jules's power, of course, that made interplanetary travel possible. A massive form of teleportation in the engines, magical gravity forces, and other such things got colony ships from point A to point Z, mostly all at once. The trip had been rough in, the, in these ways and more, but now the result was... I skipped this a little bit. But now the result was almost at hand. Through the atmosphere and closing on New Heaven, Jules realized that all that work and drama was just to be dumped on a slowly dying, dying colony with no other help on the way. How did she get signed up for the, this again? Finally, the lights in the dropship turned to mint green and everyone unbuckled their seatbelts. The Marine, who'd gotten a jiggly eyeful on the way in, hurried to retrieve, retrieve Jules's pack so that he would have something to do while Jules stood up and stretched. With a sigh, she wondered if whoever designed on-planet jumpsuits had ever even seen a woman. Admittedly, nearly all the clothing she didn't get special made was tight in the chest. Her large breasts could make life difficult sometimes, but even over her feminine hips, the material stretched uncomfortably. To make up for it, she cinched her work belt tighter around her slim waist. Before leaving the craft, she made sure her curly brown hair was ruly enough to fit a helmet over. The air on New Heaven was fit enough to breathe, but regulations still mandated a helmet at all times. With the tint of the visor on the helmet, he could sneak peeks at the poor Marine as he tried to stay focused on his duty. How long it had it been for him since he'd seen a woman like Jules. The colonial Marines on New Heaven were nearly all still male, with which Jules felt was a terrible mistake. That many males around each other without suitable conquests just made for more and more testosterone to build up. Alphas strutting around, and Betas or trying to become Alphas. She didn't want to admit how excited she was to be stepping into that powder keg of masculinity. So anyway, that's a, a little segment of chapter one of Dark Fauna. Anything that you thought was laughably terrible is a parody. Anything that seemed pretty good is my skill as a writer. <laughs> and it can be both at the same time also. Yeah, but please give me compliments. Um, I Good also, job, Nick. It's great. Yay! I also have two other new book ideas from this. I Some of them that might be Bibliobot Press and some of them might be a thing I do for myself because I think they're pretty good. I got two new ideas from this. Uh, the first one is a romance about two romance cover models falling in love because they always have to have the pictures with the two people like yeah. just about knocking boots. And so it's about like, you know, Chris Christantham that uh, really loves to, it, he like loves his job of being a male model and getting his picture taken. And then there's Stephanie Effervescence, who ha is new to the game and doesn't really know how it works. And they start falling in love, but at the same time, both thinks the other is like, it's just a job, you know, like 
there it's pictures it that's all it is and mm. so then they start falling in love and then he gets his picture taken for a different cover it's like, <gasps> that hussy oh no and my second one uh guess where this one came from uh the book i read is that uh a bodice ripper that turns into a proletariat revolution <laughs> I mean, I think there were some moments when mine could have gotten there. So, like, they're at the ball and they're like, isn't it just terrible how Lord Fauntleroy uh, blinked twice during the blink once dance or something like that? Like, some bullshit etiquette breaking and it's like, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. And then all of a sudden, just fucking the unwashed masses kicking the door. (laughs) And, like, the guillotine is outside and that's it. That's, like, the end of the book. Um, I was thinking while you were talking about the, the guy. I'm glad you weren't listening to me while I was talking. I was thinking about what you're talking about. <laughs> and I noticed a trend that in like every single bodice ripper, there's got to be a lengthy oral sex, uh, uh, yes. scene from him to her. Yeah. Right. Him going down on her. And I'm like, why is there always, and then I realized that's why it's always the upper crusts in, in bodice rippers. Why there's not often like a. Well, hopefully t- there's not too much crust down there. Grow. That's why I said upper crust. <laughs> um, that's why historical romances are always about the wealthy, in addition to Americans' desire to always be the richest person in the room, even in our fantasies. Uh, can you imagine the smell of a Victorian-era low-income romance? Not good. Not good. A also, lot more fun, but not I feel good. like they're in every romance novel, the heroine is always a virgin. Not always is the, the oh, often not. male protagonist. He's normally not. But the heroine is always a virgin, and I think that makes the the oral sex easier too. That like they're nothing, um, there's no diseases. Ah yes, you know. I was gonna say like penises don't ruin. <laughs> it's unclean down there now. A wiener has stuck to. But you were talking diseases. STIs. Yeah. But as always, they're both amazing at sex, whether or not they've ever had it before. Yeah, of course. It, She's like an absolute goddess in bed. I her mean, it hurts time. for a little bit, and then yeah. he says something, and she's ready to go. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, we have our books for next week. We do have our books for next week. Mick, do you want to tell us why we have our books for next week? <laughs> the reason we have our books for next week is that I was in the shoop area of the library, one of my favorite areas to be in, because I love, I love to shoop da whoop, uh, and I spun on a dime, or I, it's uh, later on the... the shelf i guess because the next author is nalini singh uh which is right next to the shoop da whoop section of the library uh and so i noticed just some fantastic titles still labeled romance i pulled one off. sure it was the title you noticed and not the tits well it's it's uh i feel like you can these are so big you can see them from the spine of the book there's a reason i picked this one don't get me wrong this wasn't the first one i picked off the, the shelf yeah um, but, and I immediately had to have it, Jove Paranormal Romance, uh, I picked one off, I don't remember what it's about, and so I snagged another one, and it is the Archangel's Legion, and it has a blonde woman, a dyed-haired blonde woman with the darkest roots already, mm-hmm. uh, holding a hand crossbow in both arms as if she is pointing a Glock at the ground, and in fact, I think maybe the crossbow parts were photoshopped in, uh, and so she is holding it pointed at the ground, and her biceps are doing everything they can to push those big old boobies out uh, in their torn 
uh, tank top. And so the reason we got two books at once this time around is because I could not bear the thought of coming back after we read these books and it possibly being gone. I could not chance that 0.05% that it would get checked out and that 0.08% that it would get uh, denied from the library. Because here it is. I stopped reading after the second sentence and just took it. So I, the rest of it is news to me. Angels are falling from the sky in New York, sold, struck by a vicious unknown force. Vampires are dying and possibly of disease. I was already finding Sue with this book in my hand. Yeah. I didn't even wait. The rest of it continues. Guild hunter Elena Devereaux and the archangel Raphael must discover the source of the wave of death before it engulfs their city and their people, leaving New York a ruin and Raphael's tower under siege by enemy archangels now. Most Archangel books would have the Archangel be Michael. Yeah. But we've gone with a slightly different Ninja Turtle <laughs> Archangel. Good. Uh, so that is why I had to pick two books all at once. So we'll be back for that. So I came at Nick with the Bodice Ripper, a match made in London, and was like, here, I'm so excited about this. And he's like, great, you need to go find another one also. <laughs> So he was ready to go. He had both of them. So I tried to make pretty quick work of selecting his next adventure. And I found in our library's mystery section, Maddie Hunter's Catch Me If You Can. Like Canada. Yes. So I flipped it over to the back and I read, Emily and her traveling senior citizens must solve Yeti another mystery as they <laughs> trek through the Alaskan wilderness. And I said, okay. And I handed it to Mick. Um, on the cover, there is the tail of a whale. There's some mountains and some glaciers and some little ice chunks floating in the water. And one of the ice chunks looks like a skull. And then there's Bigfoot. What? I didn't even see Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. He's hanging out right there. The skunk yep. ape himself. Yep, we got Bigfoot. I was in the middle of talking about the Renaissance and Reformation, and one of my students just goes, think Bigfoot's real? Because I don't. I'm like, that's not often a question that people who don't think Bigfoot is real shout at somebody. <laughs> Completely unprompted. And without any reason in class. Anyway, with that in mind, that is going to do it for this week of Bibliovile. I hope you find Bigfoot, whatever the metaphorical Bigfoot in your life is. The intro music for our podcast is Babe of the Night by the band Elixir off of their album Rampant. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, Twitter. you can follow us at Bibliovile, B-I-B-L-I-O-V-I-L-E. I am at Susan J. That's S with three U's, S-A-N-J. And Mick can be found at Dickima. One thing you could do that would be a really big help is to uh, retweet the show or share it with your friends. I looked. We have eight followers. <laughs> Why do we have a Twitter account? Maybe <laughs> by next... And without that Twitter account, then our German listener wouldn't have found it. But maybe by next time, we could have nine. Yeah, like German for no. Yeah. Yeah, kind of listeners. Mm-hmm. Anywho, that is going to do it for us. Thank you so much for putting up with Finn's noises as he fell asleep on my lap, as well as, I'm sure, other noises get that I did not notice. Beep, beep, beep. We love you very much. Beep, beep, beep. And never forget, I'm ripping you. Night, Matt.